Hi, I'm Jotsna Venkatesh, and this is Policy Talks. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. You'll get to hear from those of us usually hidden from the mic. Uh, we're calling this segment Producer Perspectives, and so with me in studio is one of our other producers, Kenneth Body. Hi, Kenneth. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Weird being on this side, eh? It really is. <laughs> uh, so today we'll be exploring the G7 summit that took place this weekend in Charlevoix, Quebec. Uh, The G7 represents a key moment every year when the leaders of the United States, France, Canada, Italy, the United Kingdom, Japan, and the European Union come together. This year's summit was led by Canada. As hosts of this year's summit, Canada was able to set the agenda and manage the issues that were discussed, with this year's agenda focusing on five key thematic areas. Investing in growth that works for everyone, preparing for jobs of the future, advancing gender equity and women's empowerment, working together on climate change, oceans, and clean energy, and building a more peaceful and secure world. With our rapidly changing world, it's necessary for us to understand the role of the G7 in this context. So to help me unpack some of this, I'm gonna turn to my colleague, Kenneth, And uh, let's just go over some of the commitments that came out of the G7. Okay, fantastic. Uh, So it was a pretty big uh, G7, as we all heard, I'm sure, over the news. But uh, some of the things that I think got obscured behind all of that are some of the actual really significant announcements uh, that we've we've heard from the the G7 leaders. Uh, The first announcement uh, is that all the development finance institutions from all G7 countries have come together and committed to spending 300 billion of their assets to investing in projects that are going to impact uh, the lives of women and girls. In a similar vein, there's also going to be 3.8 billion allocated for educating women and girls in crisis. Uh, and then finally, the last big announcement is the the new plastics charter that's uh, got commitment from uh, from from the G7 summit uh, that's going to seek to reduce the amount of single-use plastic that's going to be out in the world. So while we might have all been hearing about the headlines, these are some pretty significant announcements to come out of as well. Absolutely, Kenneth. And we'll definitely unpack all of those commitments a little bit later in the show, but maybe we can uh, bring it back a little bit and start with what the G7 is and why it matters. Yeah, I think uh, what the G7 is and why it matters might be two different questions. Uh, I think uh, we forget that the G7 is kind of a a longer standing institution in international affairs, at least as far as long standing institutions go. Um, It was founded in in the 70s out of the oil crisis and was going to be was a way to bring together the seven most powerful economies of the time uh, to talk about energy, uh, the economy and security. I think over time, though, that's that's adapted and changed with the world that's adapt, uh, that's changed around it as well. These are no longer economies that are as powerful proportionally as they used to be, but they're still very significant. And these these seven countries coming together still represents a massive moment in trend setting for the international system. Um, these organiza- these seven countries are also usually seen as more like-minded than some of their like G20 counterparts who might also be significant economic actors at this point. So I think uh, we've seen 
seen the the institution evolve over time and that's sort of why it becomes important is that it's still seen largely as a group of like-minded states that are are trendsetters for the global system right and i guess it's important to then kind of talk about what the real difference is between the group of seven and the g20 and i think the group of seven is sort of the western alliance it um like you said, they're a like-minded group of countries and economies with similar cultural values as well. So what do you see is really the difference between the two, the groups? Uh, why why is it important then to expand that and have a G20? Yeah, I think that's important to understand because the G20 has kind of become what the G7 used to be. Uh, we've seen the remarkable decline in terms of the proportional size of the G7 economies to the global system as China, as Russia, as India, as uh, South Africa all expand their economic sizes. They're becoming more and more important players, as well as many other middle income countries that are now included in the G20. Uh, and so the G7 doesn't have the same economic sway that it used to. Uh, it used to represent about 70% of the uh, total global GDP, and it now represents about more 30 like I think it's more like 60. It's not that much yeah. <laughs> less, but yes. I, yeah. yeah, but it's, st- it's still you're seeing projection in the future that, that we're starting to talk about China being a, new, a right. new economic superpower, and that's something we have to consider. And I think that's why we're involving uh, a broader array of countries. Um, and I think that the difference you see between the two summits is on how much agreement you can get traditionally because the g20 is a much wider variety of countries with a much varied interests they tend to stick more to those traditional uh conversations about global energy global economics global security not so much um like humanitarian issues or human rights and things like that. Yeah, and something we saw out of the G7 in Charlevoix is a, is a pretty significant focus on gender and women's empowerment. Right. That's not something you'd, you'd see get as much support from the G20. Right, okay. So I think it's important to ask um, about the nature of the outcomes and commitments that we see from G7 summits. Uh, are they binding, non-binding? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's um, it, with the G7, the commitments are always generally non-binding. Uh, usually you'll see a, a joint communique that comes out, which is a joint statement from all G7 countries. Uh, it's, it's not a legally binding document. It has no necessarily hard sway. Um, but it is a very strong normative commitment, and it does like set an international trend. Uh, in addition to that, also, most of the time you see G7s come out with major funding announcements that they, for initiatives they want to, they want to work on. Uh, so we see that Gavi, for example, came out of a G7 commitment. Uh, that was a huge global health win and a, a huge mobilization of, of money uh, that isn't, isn't necessarily a binding legal commitment, but still very, very saliable. Right. And I mean, I guess even though it's non-binding because... Um, I mean, it's important for countries to stick to their intentions because that's the whole point. And if you it's kind of order. right, if you if you stray away from that, then that uh, diminishes the relationship that you have with 
your allies. So in a way, it's it's non-binding, but it's like, well, we, we better stick to what we promised because it's in our best interest. Generally how international relations work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I mean... I know that you have lots of thoughts here uh, on in terms of what the outcomes of the G7 are. And we, I mean, I know I briefly went over the, the three announcements. Yeah, yeah uh, let's talk about them. Yeah, let's get, let's get into that. Um, I know that you and I have, we were just talking a little bit off, off mic, uh, we have a slightly different view on the, the plastics charter commitment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the plastics charter commitment is to try and reduce single-use plastics um, around the world. And the it was framed in this notion of trying to reduce plastics entering rivers, that then, therefore, there'd be less plastic entering oceans, polluting our oceans. Uh, and while I think it's very interesting, and like we were talking about before, might be a good norm-setting trend uh, for the global system, I don't think it's necessarily that significant because most plastics that enter rivers don't come from G7 countries. Right. Um, I think the, I don't actually know the five top countries, but I, but it's, I know China is one of them and it's, it's most, mostly the East Asian countries that are the biggest plastic polluters in that sense, uh, actually polluting water bodies. But uh, if you look at who's using plastic and who's buying plastic, North America, we have, I think we blow developing countries out of the water when it comes to per capita consumption. And I think that's an important point um, because that that then dictates supply. Uh, so it's it maybe makes sense for this to be part of a G7 discussion because those are the countries that are actually using plastic. Mm -hmm. Leave it, leave it to you to bring up an economic argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think the, the, the plastics charter, even if we disagree, mm -hmm. it's still very interesting, but uh, something else that's, that's really interesting is this new funding allocation of $3.8 billion to educating women and girls in crisis. It's a significant amount. Yeah. It's quite a significant amount. And, and, it's not just G7 countries that are committed to it. It's also the World Bank. Um, so why do you think it's it's so important that we have uh, money so directly focused on, on educating women and girls? Why is this something that, that seems to be a, a growing trend both in Canada with our feminist international assistance policy, uh, but also globally? Well, I think it's definitely aligned with the larger Agenda 2030 or Sustainable Development Goals kind of um, shifting the development agenda to really address um, the role of um, women in society, but also the economic power that women have in society. I think it's it really comes down to economics um, because uh, when women are educated, they tend to have less children, uh, they tend to have more time to actually contribute to an economy. And there's lots of research and studies to show that when uh, women have more economic opportunities, it actually goes down to all of their children, whether they be boys or girls. So um, it, it um, really does uh, help economies grow. And it kind of addresses a little bit of the, the climate change um, issue. So? Um, 
Well, lowering birth rates is actually a, a it has a huge impact on on carbon emissions. So at the end of the day, I think for for the G7 countries, I mean, yes, it's it's really a strategic policy. It's an it's an economic policy. Yeah. So you, you think it's not necessarily a human rights approach to development. This is like this is something that's being done because it's the economically beneficial thing for investment. I think so. Yeah. I think it's smart yeah. for business. <laughs> but hey, if that's if that's the route, then let's take it, right? Yeah, yeah. Take what we can get, definitely, definitely. The other commitment, uh, I guess the the last one that we should talk about is the three billion um, of DFI investments. You might have to explain this to me. Uh, I'm not too uh, familiar with how DFIs work, but they're focused on women's entrepreneurship. So. How is this money being pooled? Where is it going? Like, what's uh, what? What is this commitment really addressing? Mm-hmm. So, I, I guess I'll start with what a DFI is—a development finance institution. Uh, so, they're institutions that exist in, across the G7 and, and actually across a lot of OECD countries as well. Uh, they're institutions that make investments in businesses in the developing world as an approach to development that focuses on growing economies and growing businesses and trying to build out markets. Uh, What they usually do is, unlike traditional investors, like the private sector, like big banks, is they try to invest in places that don't necessarily have good access to capital. Um, So a lot of middle-income countries, a lot of low-income countries. Um, What this commitment is, and this is uh, very interesting to see, it's kind of being spearheaded by the Canadian DFI, which is called FinDev Canada, which was actually just recently just recently operationalized in January. Um, it it's They're taking the lead in trying to push DFIs to look at investing uh, their money in ways that also impact women and girls and try to uh, try to increase women's entrepreneurship and, and the the lives that women and girls have. And again, this I think goes back to what we were talking about before and, and, and this is a smart business decision. Mm-hmm. And especially from a DFI perspective, I think that that's true. Uh, and that's something that they're gonna they're gonna see, and it, it ties well again into the domestic feminine, feminist international assistance policy. Okay, so those are three big outcomes from this summit. Um, something else that has kind of been in discussion when we're talking about um, what actually makes the group of seven connect. Uh, and how their economic power is not as big as it used to be because of the emerging economies. Um, there's a little bit of talk of, should we consider other countries joining in, like China? Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that should even be considered? I mean, what's what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, I think I my, my view of... of the idea of adding more countries. Uh, I know that it was suggested that Russia should join. Uh, people have suggested that no economic forum without China is viable. Right. Uh, I, I, I question that logic um, because as we see, like the, the G7 countries are, are there's, a, there's a changing global economic landscape. Uh, and yes, the G7 economies might not be as relatively powerful as they once were, but there's something really strategic about having seven like-minded exactly. countries. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm with you on that. It's it's 
it's the likeness yeah. almost that's that's more important than the percentage of global GDP that they collectively make up. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. The fact that we can talk about gender so explicitly and openly at the G7 uh, is something that, that that's hugely beneficial. Um, and I th- still think it might still have a look good trend-setting uh, function to serve. I personally think India would be a great contender if we're going to add a country <laughs> in because they're the world's largest democracy. They've really made... Um, public commitments to uh, banning plastic and mm-hmm. moving to renewables. And I think there it would be a good strategic partner to have in the East. Yeah. Um, but anyway. I think you might be right. I just, I, I'd, I'd propose that maybe China and Pakistan wouldn't be too No, they would not be happy about <laughs> that at all. So um, perhaps it's better to keep the G20 as a G20, yeah. <laughs> G7 as a G7. So yeah, I think that that that's a pretty good uh, summary of of the G seven and and trying to highlight some of the things that might not have made necessarily the news, but are still very significant. Uh, so on from Joe and I, we wanted to thank you all for listening to uh, Policy Talks. Uh, you can visit us at policytalkspodcast.com, on Twitter at policytalkspod, uh, for any updates and related content. We would also like to acknowledge. Uh, the support of our partners at iAffairs Canada, an online media hub based at the Norman Patterson School for International Affairs at Carleton University. iAffairs engages with the diverse international affairs community in Canada and around the world to produce policy research and recommendations on foreign policy issues, uh, with a specific focus on students, emerging scholars, and young professionals. You can visit them at iAffairsCanada.com to learn more. Finally, I uh, I know something that's very important for Joe and I is we'd like to acknowledge the hard work of the production team, Benjamin Musampa, Aruba Mustafa, and Basil Ismail. Until next time, I'm Kenneth. And I'm Joe. And this is Policy Talks.